uh, Claire, and thank you, Stefano, for organizing this great conference. And I'm also extremely happy to be in the same panel with Elika and Francesca. And there will indeed be a lot of resonances between uh, the, my presentation and the two previous ones. So in this presentation, I would like to discuss the cosmopolitanism of several post-independence Indian writers and artists, a cosmopolitanism which must less be understood as a form of anti-nationalism, for which many of these writers are precisely being attacked in India today, anti-national or westernized are often the equivalents the equivalents used by detractors of what we could identify as a form of cosmopolitanism, but as a challenge to the idea of a compact national identity that a literature would be committed to embrace or to promote, as a challenge to attempts at representing Indianness in univocal or appropriable terms, and as a challenge on the part of Indian writers to be defined irrevocably as such. Against filial and national assignations, they affiliate themselves to a transnational community of imagination that <laughs> cuts across boundaries of time, space, and languages. The English Marathi poet Arun Kolatkar declares, and I quote him, I have never stopped to ask myself whether I am an Indian poet or not. I've tried to keep an awareness of what's happening in the world and write what I can. I try to fuse whatever I have access to. Indianness is no abstract model to which anyone can try to conform. What makes you Indian should really take care of itself. These writers and artists create works of art that are neither the national allegories. Sorry, is that? Slideshow. I think you want a slideshow. Yeah, yeah. but I'm just, yeah. It's fine. It, it doesn't really. Yeah. Okay, I'll just continue. Um, so these writers and artists create works of art that are neither the national allegories that Frederick Jameson as assumed third world texts to be, or that cultural fundamentalists in India and sometimes post-colonial critics <coughs> would want to restrict Indian literary text to, nor do they celebrate the marvel of the global <coughs> that's Amit Chaudhuri's expression. And it is perhaps in that gap between the global and beyond the national in a form of situated and worldly practice that I understand cosmopolitanism. Works that are situated both locally and in the world, or rather in the multiple worlds that works of art and literature always simultaneously inhabit and invent. Poets and artists that are situated in specific spaces, such as Kolatkar, who was stubbornly pacing his, his one little corner of South Bombay, Arvind Krishna Merotra, who writes from Allahabad and Dehradun, or Gulam, Gulam Mohammed Sheikh, who paints in and from Baroda, who have always, these three writers and artists, who have always been grounded in a locale, can open this locale to a network of connections with other locations. You can be here with all of what you know, read, or imagine of there, and perhaps be here as if it was there. That's what Merotra suggests when he writes that since he was 17 years old, he harbored the illusion that he did not live in Uttar Pradesh, but in New York, by surrounding himself with a large number of books and a handful of friends who live in other cities. 
It is in that sense that many of these artists and poets are distinctly cosmopolitan. They fashion instances in the works of Carol Brickenridge, and I quote her, of ways of living abroad at home, ways of inhabiting multiple places at once. This articulation to the notion of multiplicity is, I think, an essential feature of the cosmopolitanism of these writers and artists. Far from being an ideal um, uh, uh, doctrine for cosmocrats, or what Bruce Robbins has called a luxuriously free-floating view from above, cosmopolitanism must be seen here as a context of creation, as a practice of writing, reading, translating, or creating. And I love um, Sheldon Pollock's definition of cosmopolitanism. I quote him as action rather than idea, as something people do rather than something they declare, as practice rather than proposition. And cosmopolitanism must be considered as project that has to do with a plurality that I've just evoked, a, a plurality which is increasingly threatened in India, and with the resilient and inventive strategies of survival which James Clifford associates with the notion of discrepant cosmopolitanism. This idea of cosmopolitanism as context, as practice, and as project, I would like to dev develop throughout this presentation. I won't really be talking about modernism as such, or about the entanglement of modernism and cosmopolitanism, which is a characteristic of this speci specific generation of writers and artists who started producing their work in the 50s, because it's the, the subject of a book that I published in 2014. But modernism is, of course, in the background of everything uh, that I will say. And these and writers and artists really embrace a modernism that was, was both extremely grounded um, locally, translate, translated or reinvented <coughs> locally, and linked to everything else that was happening in the world. So I'd like to start with a few propositions, and some of them might seem extremely obvious, so please forgive me. Uh, so my first proposition, which I will not develop because uh, I've done it in, in the chapter on Bombay, um, but which is linked to the idea of cosmopolitanism as context, is that, of course, cosmopolitanism is a product of history, which in India is inseparable from the history of colonization and the East-West encounter. My second proposition, also relating to cosmopolitanism as context, is that it is a product of the consumption of world literatures in translation, as both Francesca and Eleker have shown. Many writers and artists who started producing their work in the 50s recall that books, books and magazines started pouring in from all over the world on the pavements of Indian cities after the Second World War. The paperback revolution coincided with a feverish activity in translation, writes the English Marathi poet Dilip Chitre, and this unleashed a tremendous variety of cross influences. The world shrank greatly, he writes. <coughs> the connection between cosmopolitanism and curiosity or bibliophilia has often been made. This generation indeed showed a formidable appetite for other literatures and arts, and a formidable appetite for translation. Ghulam Mohammed Sheikh speaks of himself and others as hungry souls, lusting to share, to, lusting, uh, to share a feel of the modern in the 50s. 
liberated by F.N. Souza, but also by Soulage, Pollock, Tapies, reproductions of which he would, he says, hunt down and devour. The culinary literary metaphor um, uh, also runs through Kolatkar's works. Uh, books from all over the world are to be digested. In an unpublished text, the poet describes himself as a bulimic adventurer, as indiscriminate and reckless in his reading habits as in his eating habits. And I quote him, I'm afraid I've been a glutton, consumed poets of Europe, living and dead, only after they have been eaten, consumed, and regurgitated by translators, the flourishing tribe, into English. I've supplemented my diet with canned catullus, smoked baudelaire, reconstituted Villon, pickled Apollinaire, salted mashed Mendelstam, and the list goes on. In his recent book on the Republic of Letters, Marc Fumaroli depicts an enchanted circle of European scholars and erudites, a spiritual aristocracy of sorts, striving to revive the treasures of antiquity. The writers and artists that I'm interested in are not really erudites, but anti-elitist and anti-academic poachers in Michel de Certeau's exception of the word, and I'll come back to Certeau if I have time, but let me just quote this wonderful citation. The reader produces gardens that collate a world. Readers are travelers. They move across lands belonging to <coughs> someone else, like nomads poaching their way across fields they did not write. So all these writers and, and artists are formidable readers indeed, but they read indiscriminately everything they come across, from travel books, history, science fiction, comic strips, uh, newspapers, of which they are voracious readers, and they're fascinated by all forms of popular culture. The little magazines that started flourishing um, Here it is, sorry. The little magazines that started flourishing in India at the time reflected that irreverence towards all forms of hierarchies and abolished the frontiers between high and low, art and non-art, artists and non-artists. And I quote Kolatkar again. I want to reclaim everything I consider my tradition. It's a browser's approach, not a scholarly one. One big supermarket situation. I like looking at legal, medical, non-sacred texts, schoolboys' texts from Egypt, a list of books in the collection of a Peshwa wife, correspondence about obtaining a pair of spectacles, deeds of sale, marriage, etc. Their playground, then, is as much the library as it is the street. The poet Adil Jusawala writes that some of his best reading has been literally picked off the streets and that he delights in the eclectic randomness of these discoveries. Still on cosmopolitanism as context, my third proposition would be that cosmopolitanism is a product of marginality. So I've studied elsewhere um, uh, the bohemianism of this specific generation of artists and writers who had broken from their traditional backgrounds to practice their art in the metropolis and who occupy a position of cultural, linguistic, um, or social marginality. Uh, a lot of these writers and artists have spoken of their hostile, anti-literary surroundings and of their despair in a culture of shortages. 
shortage of critics, shortage of recognition, readers, publishers, etc. This neglect was of course heightened by the fact that some of the poets that I'm talking about wrote in English. And it is crucial to keep in mind that English is also, in India, <coughs> the language of marginality and outsidedness, whose practitioners are constantly criticized for being illegitimate, un-Indian, if not anti-national. Merotra even talks of, about Indian poets in English as, and I quote him, the LGBT community of Indian literature. Um, yet this marginality also accounts for their creativity and cosmopolitanism. It gave them the freedom to invent themselves unburdened by many of the national conditionings and anxieties. To a certain extent, they had no other alternative than to look elsewhere, outside India. It's also in that sense that I'm talking of cosmopolitanism as a form of literary survival and that marginality can translate as hospitality or worldliness. In the little magazines and small presses that they created, they found what Raymond Williams in another context has called a community of the medium of their own practices, where they cleared a space for themselves outside the establishment and where they connected with each other and with the world outside. You must remember that all these little magazines of the period uh, circulated from periphery to periphery and constructed what a critic has aptly called a decentered literary universe. <coughs> little magazines in India were exchanged with similar countercultural publications in the West, and they staged through the publication of letters, reviews, translations, their transnational affiliations. In the pages of Vrischik, started by Gulam Mohammed Sheikh in Baroda, or Damn You and Ezra, started by Merotra from Allahabad, you find texts by Ginsberg, John Cage, Hans Arp, but also letters by American GIs protesting the war in Vietnam, or letters written by the editor of Manhattan Review. The marginality of this little magazine, Indian Conspiracy, was everything but provincial. Although most of these writers and artists were marginalized figures at the time, and though many are still, to a large extent, part of what has been called the great unread, they were worldly from the very start. All these transnational connections and traveling literatures produced a cosmopolitanism that must also be understood as imaginary. Feng Shea, which uh, Emily Apter quoted um, an hour, two hours ago, uh, has, suggest has suggested that if cosmopolitanism is about viewing oneself as part of a circle of belonging that transcends the ties of country, since, obviously, one cannot see the world, the cosmopolitan optic is not one of experience, but of imagination. World literature becomes an important aspect of cosmopolitanism because it is a type of world-making activity that enables us to imagine a world. Through world literature, Indian writers and artists indeed remap or reworld their world. They give themselves a new genealogy, which is also a new cartography. And I quote Merotra, literary geographies run counter to real ones. New York and the interior towns of Maharashtra could be in the same country. It's the only country worth having patriotic feelings about.
In a moving unpublished passage, Kolatkar also places himself in a transnational fraternity of poets, living and dead. And I quote him, and it's a passage that I love quoting, <laughs> as Francesca knows. Um, All good poets, when they die, go to heaven. And from wherever they are, it may be they are watching over me. I feel they are right here now, listening to every word I say. I feel their collective presence in the air. Heine, Blake, Mandelstam, Apollinaire, Baudelaire, Vallejo, Catullus, Villon, Tufu, Kabir, Tukaram, they're all there. Another way to forge these affiliations, to assert bonds of kinship and recreate a collective is of course through translation. So moving on to cosmopolitanism as practice, this would be my fourth proposition, that cosmopolitanism is inseparable from the practice of translation. And translat translators, it's a tru truism to say so, work, of course, across languages, times, spaces, across East and West also. All these writers did not just consume world literatures after they had first been digested into English, but also digested earlier poets in Hindi, Marathi, and other vernaculars, and recast them into English, taking their own place in the great food chain of reading, translating, defamiliarizing, rewriting, where literature originates. And uh, all these trans translations were published in the same little magazines. Um, if, as Amit Chaudhuri suggests, in Indian modernity, the Indian and the Western constantly take on each other's disguises, there is perhaps no better illustration of these transactions and permutations than these translations. The medieval compositions of um, Kabir, Tukaram, Namdeo are renewed through the zeitgeist of the 60s, through English, um, through some of the modern poets' uh, passionate interest in the blues or in rock and roll. In Kolatkar's retellings, for example, Tukaram also speaks in the voice of Charlie Chaplin, Woody Guthrie, Muddy Waters, or Allen Ginsberg. Through these Bhakti recastings, modern Indian writers mediate between their different languages, selves, and worlds. They also exceed the inevitable dialectics of the native versus the alien, the Indian versus the Western, the local versus the global, or what is meant to be one's own versus what is discarded as not one's own, into which nativists and nationalists seem imprisoned. And how much time do I have, Claire? Okay. So um, I'll, I'll go to my last proposition, um, which would be cosmopolitanism that is inseparable from the experience, the expression, and the defense of multiplicity. And this is both multiplicity as practice and as project. The cosmopolitanism that I'm talking about here has, in a sense, much less to do with the process of unification of the world than with a certain articulation to difference and plurality, which is um, all the more pressing, as all of you know, that it is threatened in contemporary in India. 
Arjun Apadurai opens his essay on urban cleansing in Bombay on what he calls a brief history of decosmopolitanization, which he connects to the increasing ethnicization of the city and the nation, whose space is purged of its non-native, so-called alien, often Muslim, bodies. Against Hindutva attempts at constructing standardized national narratives of tradition or culture, culture whose ultra-sensitive frontiers have to be guarded from multiple corrupt foreign deviant misreadings, and against those who try to assert a patrimonial relationship to the nation, all these writers and artists claim the right to recycle, estrange, remap, rediscover their own voice and their past through other literatures and languages. They also claim the right to pluralize, defamiliarize, and reinvent an India that includes what is non-Indian and contains the inexhaustible multitudes that their work also give evidence of. It's also in that sense that the nationalist versus cosmopolitan debate is not just an outdated um, quarrel or a question of theory. Writers and artists, as, as all of you know, have been harassed and killed for their so-called anti-national or anti-Indian works. And it's in that sense that cosmopolitanism as a poetics of defamiliarization and rewarding um, as expression of and defense of multiplicity is also intrinsically political. I would have loved to um, show you works by Ghulam Mohammed Sheikh, but I don't think I have the time, um, so I'll stop here. Yeah.